Paradise Rescued is a sustainable, environmentally friendly, award-winning Bordeaux micro winery, hand-producing fine organic wine. Our mission is to maintain the rural heritage of our village in Cardan, Bordeaux, France. Paradise Rescued has a clear international vision and a passion for providing personal customer service. Welcome to this edition of the Paradise Rescued Bordeaux Bits podcast. My name is David Starr. I'm the founder and director of Paradise Rescued. And this week, uh, you may or may not know, the Tour de France is in full spin around France and coming into the last week. And for the first time ever in its life, it's going to be going through our village, our Paradise Rescue village in Cardon. So we thought it'd be great to have on, on the podcast this time somebody who really knows about wine and cycling at the same time. And the person who bridges that best of all is probably in a completely unique character. And it's really, um, you know, my great pleasure to welcome Lauren Walsh to our podcast this week to uh, help us sort it all out and take us through this exciting day. So, Lauren, welcome. Hi, David. Thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast to talk about two of my favorite things, cycling and wine, of course. And the, the Tour de France is the perfect intersection of both of those. So very pleased to be here. Excellent. Fantastic. Tell us, Lauren, I mean, how did you get started into this? It's a unique niche. There's nobody else in the world that I know that talks wine with great common sense and intelligence and also talks cycling in a language that we can understand. How did that all happen? Well, um been a huge sports fan all of my life and um, did a lot of recreational cycling um, from the time I was a kid. And of course, um, as cycling became more popular in the US, um, I watched more and more of it on TV and became quite a fan and then started to learn more about the sport itself, which is quite interesting when you get into the tactics and the rules and such. Um, about the same time, I was developing an interest in wine, started taking classes, and the bug really bit me. So these two things sort of evolved on parallel tracks. And I remember back in 2015, I was sitting at my brother's house talking to my family and thinking, you know, wow, the Tour de France is going on right now. It's quite exciting. And every day I see another wine region that's you know, so interesting and has such history. And, you know, maybe folks haven't heard of it, but the wines are really great. And I thought, gee, someone should write about that. And my brother looked at me and he said, well, why don't you write about it? So um, I hemmed and hauled about it for a little bit. And I thought, well, if I don't do it, someone else will. And why not just see if there's any interest out there? And I started the blog that year and um, have been doing it ever since. And um, it's really a joy for me, um, whether anybody reads it or not. Um, that's another question. But I love it because I get to delve into the history and culture of France, which I love. Um, wine, which, of course, is one of my favorite things. And then cycling, which is also a passion for me. So it brings together all the good things. And um, for, for three weeks, I'm totally happy. So. Yeah. 
And, and you cover other races as well, I understand. Um, it's not just the Tour de France. You've, you've branched out now that you, yeah, you anything that looks like a, a cycling race and goes through wine country, you're in. Well, people may not know if they don't follow cycling. Um, the sport has three grand tours. And the Tour de France, of course, is the crown jewel in that in that collection, but there's also the Giro d'Italia, which is the Tour of Italy, and that takes place in May every year. It's the first of the three. The Tour de France happens in July, and then um, late August, uh, we have the Vuelta a España, which is the Tour of Spain. So as you know, um, each of those countries offers a wealth of wine and culture and stories, so I branched out to start covering those races and then some of the smaller ones, too, at the beginning of the season. If there's a place to intersect wine and, and cycling, I try to uh, at least give it a try and, 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 and write about it. So, Yeah, it sounds uh, fantastic. I mean, those are your three top um, wine producing countries in the world. So inevitably, you're going to start in, in those three you you can't fail but to trip over some good grapes somewhere. <laughs> There's always something good to drink as you watch, yes. So tell us, Tom, why, why is the Tour de France, though, the sort of the special one? I mean, it's the one everybody talks about, the one everybody knows about. Um, what makes the Tour de France so unique? I think for the reasons you just mentioned, it's the one race, even people who know nothing about cycling know this race. Um, it's the one that's most likely to be televised uh, in countries that maybe aren't so big on cycling. Like the U.S. for a long time, um, we had a healthy cycling sport, but we didn't necessarily have lots of uh, uh, fans watching. Um, that changed when Greg LeMond made his uh, uh, debut and, and was so successful. But everyone knows about the Tour de France. And um, so... There is a bit of prestige accorded to that race, um, which is not to say that the other Grand Tours aren't also uh, uh, magnificent races worthy of all that attention. But probably um, even now, um, it's really hard to watch the Giro in the U.S., um, you have to sign up with a provider and watch it on an app. There's no way to watch it on the broadcast. Um, the Vuelta, I think NBC is still doing it, but um, the coverage isn't quite as thorough as it is for the, the Tour de France. So um, in a long-winded answer to your question, I think some of it has to do with exposure and, and um, uh, fans' awareness and their ability to watch the race because uh, – if you can't watch it, then you, you, you can't get excited about it. Yeah. And I would imagine, Lauren, over, over time, as you, I mean, you go to the Tour de France, it goes every corner of France and a few other corners outside of it as well. But I would imagine over time, you, you end up almost knowing as, as much about every region of, of French wine as, um, you know, one of the sort of a French expert would almost know. I mean, you, you cover every corner. Well, it's helpful for, I'm studying for the WSCT diploma. I have one exam to go. So in, in many ways, doing these posts, um, they, it's really helped me uh, delve into the wine regions and their esoteric rules and, and regulations. 
um, and also to get a feel for what it actually looks like. Um, that really helps when you're studying to have a picture of an area, to have a sense for what it looks like as you drive through it. Um, it makes the landscape make sense, the climatic um, uh, influences make more sense when you can see the mountains, for example, or you can see the flatlands and watch the wind blow through. You kind of understand the challenges that a vintner might have there. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the race this year, about the Tour de France. We, we're just, right as we're making this, it, well, the time it's published, it will be obviously a couple of days afterwards, but we're in into week three, the final week. We're on the break day. The, uh, the cyclists are all up in Andorra at the moment on the, um, the French Pyrenees um, uh, Spanish border. Um, yeah, what, what's what's your summary and take of the race in 2021? Well, if I had to use one word to describe this tour, it would be unexpected. Um, for good and bad, um, we were really looking forward to a rematch of the two Slovenian cyclists. Mm -hmm. Tade Pagacar, who is uh, the defending champion, and Primoz Roglic, who until the last couple of stages in last year's tour was, was leading. And uh, it was Tade Pogachar in one of the last stages who won the time trial and ended up taking the yellow jersey at the end. So everyone was excited to see these two reprise their their rivalry um, uh, in, in a three-week race. And unfortunately, um, in a first week that had so many crashes that eliminated quite a few riders, Primoz Roglic was uh, uh, injured in a crash and he abandoned, which, you know, very disappointing for all of us. But since then, Tade Pogachar has solidified his lead, um, riding brilliantly i will say um there's not anything he can't do he time trials well he sprints decently he's an awesome climber and he's very smart for someone 22 years old he's got a composure and a maturity that really kind of uh is surprising uh but he's got a lead now of gosh i think it's over four minutes which might not sound like a lot <laughs> but it is coming into the last week of the tour so Really, the excitement is going to be around the placements of second through 10th, um, how that's going to jumble and reshuffle uh, by the end of next week. So that will be exciting. But probably the best story of this year's tour for me is the resurgence of Mark Cavendish as the premier sprinter in the world. And um, for those of you who don't know a lot about cycling, um, it isn't just about the yellow jersey, the overall winner. We also have a prize for the best sprinter. And throughout the three weeks, uh, the sprinters compete for points that are available at different uh, stages along the road or at the, the finish. And whoever accumulates the most by the end wins the coveted green jersey. And Mark Cavendish is a legend in the sport, um, but many thought that after some injuries and illness that, you know, his days at the, the front of the Peloton were over. Um, he got a chance to come back to the tour this year, and he's been riding just like the Mark Cavendish of old. And he's been so grateful to his team for the support. And it's really emotional to watch him and 
Just the other day, he tied a record held by Eddie Merckx that had stood for 46 years for the number of victories. And, and uh, he has a chance to actually break that record by the end of this tour. And it'll be a great thing to watch. So um, lots more going on than the yellow jersey. So very exciting. So what do we reckon, Lauren? Do we actually reckon that um, he's going to do that on, on on stage 19? I mean, the next couple of stages, that will be uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday kind of thing, I think, uh, are still what I call um, playing um, in the Alps, uh, sorry, Pyrenees. And, and that's always mm-hmm. tough going, and he's, he's, that's obviously not his, his, you know, main area for, for a sprinter. But that section Definitely. coming out from there, from stage 19, the Marinks through to a Le Bourne stage that comes through Cardon, I mean, that's – well, the first part of that is, is, is completely flat. The Londes district is completely flat from once you drop off the Pyrenees all the way till you get across the River Garonne and into Bordeaux wine country. And then as you come up literally into Cardon, that's about it. You, you know, you, you climb up, I don't know, 100 metres very quickly. So there's a little bit of a challenge there, but then it's, there's a bit of up and down, but then it'll be downhill into a racing finish to Le Bourne, which being on the River Dordogne only has about, you know, about, a, I guess, 20 metres above sea level. So, you know, all in all, it's, it's, a, it's a racing finish. It definitely is, um, but what might complicate that just a little bit is the length of the stage. Um, it's over 200 kilometers. Um, as you said, it's flat. Um, if there's any wind coming into play there, it could make for a very long day, um, battling what they call the crosswinds and then the echelons that form. It could break up the peloton, and it could make... Um, for a hard day for the de Kooning quick step team um, that supports Mark Cavendish, trying to get him to the finish intact. Uh, the other thing that may come into play is the fact that we're nearing the end of the tour. Um, any of the teams that haven't won anything and still aspire to will send their folks out ahead, trying to establish what they call a breakaway um, to see if they can grab a stage win. So, um, on paper, it's flat and it might play into Cavendish's hands, but there's going to be a lot of other folks who have something to say about that, uh, on, on that stage. We may well come down to the very last day in Paris, which is a sprint along the Champs-Élysées. Uh, it's the only part of the final stage of the tour that's not, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, uh, it, well, it's full out. It's an actual race. Most of the, the last stage, the yellow jersey, all the other jerseys are established. They ride in, they drink champagne, they wave to their families and friends. But the sprinters, it's different. They are waiting for that sprint on the chance to win that stage. It's considered the most prestigious sprint stage there is. And everyone wants to. But what an achievement that would be if Mark Cavendish won that stage and broke the record at the same time. That would be really exciting. So um, lots to consider. There's some, Like with the tour, it's never boring. Every day there's something new going on. So, 
Yeah, that look, it sounds like an exciting finish. And I guess that probably from what I hear in your voice, that's your, that's your hot tip for um, for the Champs-Élysées would be uh, Cavendish to, uh, to to take out win whatever it is, number 35, I think, and to, to take that record and win the green jersey, which he's almost certain to do now, I think, anyway. But uh, there will be a, a pretty good finish um, coming back from nowhere. It would be the feel-good story of the tour. We've had a few of them from the beginning, but this one everyone can relate to, and he's riding with such emotion. How can you not root for the guy? I mean, we're all like, go Kev. Yeah, yeah, man, yeah, you know, it will be a great way to way to finish it off, and uh, it looks like everybody else will be supporting him there as well. It's it's been it's good to watch the, the video clips of, of an evening time, once uh, once it's all over, and to see the uh, the support he gets from everybody around him. It's been outstanding. Um, Tell us, Lauren, what else do you do? Because I know the one thing we haven't disclosed to the uh, the listening world here is that uh, you also go by, I don't know, it's a, a nom de plume or, um, you know, your, 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 your drinking pet name or whatever of the swirling dervish. So um, what else did you do in there apart from follow cycling races around the world <laughs> with, with great interest and a, and a, and a distant camera? Well, um, the blog really... Um encompasses all the wine things that I'm involved in. Um, I'm a student, a perpetual student, it seems. Um, And I try to incorporate some of the studies that I'm doing for the diploma with what I write about. Um, I enjoy mixing it up with some of my wine writing colleagues and uh, participate in a few of the, the groups where we gather on a theme and share our notes on wines and, and, and different wine pairing themes, anything related to wine, uh, even tangentially, I can include. So um, I'll write about, you know, press events that I was invited to. Um, sometimes it's more personal. Um, if I find a wine that uh, reminds me of family time or, or whatever, um, it really is a personal uh, journey that brings together the things that are important to me. And uh, uh, yeah, so uh, lots of writing, uh, lots of video chats over the past year and uh, uh, just really, really happy to have the return of live sports so that I can keep covering that as well. So (laughs) yes, get it out there again. The world is slowly restarting, even though it's complicated. And you said you're doing your, your final um, paper or dissertation for the WESET diploma. And uh, that, that's certainly becoming increasingly the sort of um, yeah, benchmark for being a, I don't know what the word is, sommelier probably is, is a good place to, to, to start. Um, and it, it's, it takes a while, I guess. Huh? You, you don't just rock up and have a couple of glasses of wine and, and it's all over. There's a lot of hard work involved. It is an incredible amount of work. Um, There are six units. Um, Each one uh, culminates in either a a paper or, in most cases, a difficult exam that's part essay question, part blind tasting. Um, And it uh, it is stressful. Um, but there is a lot of information uh, that you'll accumulate. Um, 
over time. One of the better things about the program I have found is um, being able to connect with fellow students and, and they're all over the world. So uh, depending on how you take your class, if you take it online, um, you're likely to be in a cohort of folks who are in Europe, maybe um, the United States too, um, some maybe in, 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 in Asia, but um, it's really kind of cool to uh, get to know folks and um, benefit from their experience and also um, their questions and, and challenges. So it, it also is really nice to feel like you're not in that endeavor alone because it is really uh, challenging. And it must be very exciting, Lauren, to actually speak to someone about wine in their country. So to be able to talk to, I don't know, someone in, in France and really get a perspective of it rather than what you what you read um, somewhere. I mean, you know, a region like Bordeaux is, uh, if you go to the media, you would think that there is just 150 of these wonderfully amazing, extremely expensive chateau, and that's all that wine in Bordeaux is all about, which couldn't really be further from the truth. There is a bunch of them there, and there's a you know there's another five and a half thousand of the rest of us. Um, but it, it would be exciting just to get that perspective, I guess, when you you catch up with people in a, in a country which you've probably never even thought of visiting, let alone actually knowing that they've got vineyards galore. True, very true, and and it's usually through those uh, contacts that you might be introduced to a winemaker. Um, who, like you are, is, is doing things on a smaller scale um, that, that's really kind of interesting to know about. It's the real people of the wine world. And that, for me, is where uh, the love for the subject deepens because it's all about people and their stories and why did they decide to do this against all the odds and how are they meeting the challenges of things like climate change and and. Uh, a year of COVID where they don't have people visiting and, and things like that. So it, it is about the people in the end and um, delving beneath the surface because um, there's always more to a bottle of wine than needs where it gets interesting. Yeah, no, that's good. Lauren, it has been absolutely fascinating uh, sharing the the experiences in your vision and coverage of the the Tour de France today and uh, we're we're really excited come Friday afternoon Um, for anybody listening and you're close at hand here then it'll be somewhere between 20 past four and 440 that the uh, the tour will go through the the village of Cardon on its way northbound out of uh, Cadillac and Begay up towards Crayon through to Grésilac and into the the end point for for the race of stage 19 in the Bourne. So uh, thank you very much indeed for sharing that with us on our Bordeaux Bits uh, podcast. It's been exciting having you here and uh, look, hopefully we should should do this and cover it off again and we can maybe reminisce on how the outcome of this whole journey takes place (laughs) in a couple of weeks' time. But uh, Lauren Walsh, the Swirling Dervish, can I thank you very much indeed for, for joining our podcast today. Thank you. Thanks, David. It's my pleasure, and I look forward to chatting again. Thank you. My name is David Stannard. This has been another episode of Bordeaux Bits by Paradise Rescued. The Tour de France comes to Bordeaux, an interview with Lauren Walsh. 